You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open our Bibles together to the scripture reading this afternoon. Luke 22, verses 1 to 30. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on my thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This afternoon we are considering the truth of God's word as it's been summarized and confessed by the church in the Heidelberg Catechism, in Lord's Day 29. Are then the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? 
No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ and is not the washing away of sins itself, but is simply God's sign and pledge, so also the bread and the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, although it is called Christ's body in keeping with the nature and usage of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread His body and the cup His blood or the new covenant in His blood? And why does Paul speak of a participation in the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us by His supper that as bread and wine sustain us in this temporal life, so His crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. But even more important, He wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge, first, that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in His true body and blood, as surely as we receive with our mouth these holy signs in remembrance of Him. And second, that all His suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. Beloved Congregation of Christ Jesus, Last week, as we began considering the Lord's Supper, we saw that it's all about focusing our faith on Jesus Christ and so also having our faith strengthened by Jesus Christ. Well, have you ever thought about where Jesus Christ is when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And again, let's let's make this concrete. Was Jesus Christ present at the sacrament when we celebrated it on January 11th. Was he here? Will he be present at the sacrament next month, on March 8th, the next time we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And if he will be present, how is that so? Is it different than the way he's present in my bedroom when I'm reading my Bible by myself and I'm praying? Through the history of the church, that question has been answered in different ways. In the year 818, Pascasius Redbertus seems to have been the first one to say that the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper are changed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. 818, Pascasius Redbertus was the first one to say that. In the year 1133, Hildebert of Tours gave this teaching a name. He called it transubstantiation. At the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, it became an official teaching of the Catholic Church. And today, it remains the official position of Rome. Transubstantiation says that the bread and wine are transformed into Christ's body and blood when the priest consecrates those elements. And thus, when communion is celebrated, when the Lord's Supper, or Mass, as Roman Catholics call it, is held, Jesus Christ is present. He is present in the bread. He is present in the wine. Well, along came the Reformation. And the doctrine of transubstantiation was called into question. All the Reformers rejected this teaching as being contrary to the Bible. Some said that the Lord's Supper was only a memorial of Christ's saving work in the past. 
They emphasized the words of 1 Corinthians 11, 24-25, where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So some said that Jesus Christ is not present at the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, they said, is just about believers remembering what Jesus Christ has done. And nothing more. Today, this is the majority position in much of North American Christianity. And so by default, it may even be the majority position among many Reformed Christians. However, it's not the teaching of Scripture, nor is it the teaching of our confessions. And don't get me wrong, we believe that there is a memorial aspect to the Lord's Supper. Absolutely. Our form for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, if you look at it, it has a section entitled, Remembrance of Christ. It begins, let us now consider for what purpose the Lord has instituted his supper, namely, that we should use it in remembrance of him. And then follows the manner in which we are to remember him, focusing our faith on his passion. By that I mean his suffering and also his death. And in fact, I think that section of the Lord's Supper form is a wonderful summary of the gospel. At the Lord's Supper... We're to remember the gospel. We're to remember the good news of what Christ has done for us. And so there's definitely that remembering aspect in the Reformed, the biblical doctrine of the Lord's Supper. But that's not all. In fact, if we stop there, we impoverish ourselves. There's more. And it's that more that we want to explore this afternoon we'll see that we confess from the Scriptures that Jesus Christ is truly present in the Lord's Supper. And we'll consider, first of all, the nature of this true presence, and then second of all, the benefits of this true presence. As we begin considering the nature of Christ's true presence in the Supper, let me read a quote to you. The quote begins, It is beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ did not commend His sacraments to us in vain. Therefore, he works in us all that he represents to us by these holy signs. We do not understand the manner in which this is done, just as we do not understand the hidden activity of the Spirit of God. Yet we do not go wrong when we say that what we eat and drink is the true natural body and the true blood of Christ. Now, when I teach pre-confession classes and I deal with the Lord's Supper, I'll often read this to the students and then I'll ask them where they think it comes from. Who says this? They hear that last part, right? Yet we do not go wrong when we say that what we eat and drink is the true natural body and the true blood of Christ. They hear that, and they think that this must be Roman Catholic. Well, it was written by someone who used to be a Roman Catholic. But he became Reformed. Guido de Bra wrote those words. And they're in the Belgic Confession in Article 35. I invite you to take your book of praise and look that up together with me. Page 469 of the book of praise, Article 35. Let's read those words again. This is beginning at the second full paragraph on page 469. 
It is beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ did not commend his sacraments to us in vain. Therefore, he works in us all that he represents to us by these holy signs. We do not understand the manner in which this is done, just as we do not comprehend the hidden activity of the Spirit of God. Yet, we do not go wrong when we say that what we eat and drink is the true natural body and the true blood of Christ. So in Article 35, we confess that Christ is truly present in the Lord's Supper. And when we eat and drink, we eat and drink Christ. Now you may be scratching your head and thinking, well, pastor, how is that different from what the Roman Catholic Church teaches? Loved ones, the next, the, the next line shows us what the difference is. Look again to Article 35. The next line says, however, the manner in which we eat it is not by mouth, but in the spirit by faith. Faith is the means by which we take hold of Christ's natural body and blood. Faith is the means by which we take hold of Christ, also when it comes to the Lord's Supper. The bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper, they remain bread and wine. We don't believe that the Bible teaches that the bread and wine turn into the body and blood of Christ. Consider what we read from Luke 22. After taking bread and breaking it, Jesus says in verse 19, this is my body given for you. Think about that for a moment. Jesus was standing before them with his real physical body. Same body that he has right now, except in a glorified state. At that moment, his body and the bread were two different things. They were clearly distinct from each other. And they remained so. Further, it happened more often that Jesus used symbolic language during his earthly ministry. For instance, Jesus says in John 15 that he is the vine. Obviously, he did not mean that he is literally, or that he becomes a plant bearing grapes. The vine represents or symbolizes Jesus. He also calls himself the door, the lamb, the fountain, the rock, and so on. In each case, the language is symbolic. And last week we read from John 6, and there Jesus calls himself bread. He calls himself the bread of life and the bread that came down from heaven. And so there's precedent for Jesus to refer to himself in these symbolic terms. What's said here about the bread holds equally true for the wine, of course. In fact, I would say it's even more apparent. Because in Luke, he doesn't say that the wine is his blood, does he? Rather, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now think about that for a moment. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Does the cup become the covenant? How can a cup be a covenant? Like a a, a ring in marriage, it could be a sign of a covenant. It could be pointing to a covenant. But it cannot actually itself be a, a covenant. And therefore, we recognize that the bread and the wine, they don't change into anything else. At the Lord's Supper, they are always bread and wine. 
And that's also the point the Catechism drives home in question and answer 78. The bread does not become the body of Christ itself. Yet the Bible calls it the body of Christ because of the nature and the usage of sacraments. That means that we should remember that sacraments are signs. No one should confuse the sign with that which is signified. Again, a few weeks back, I talked about the big green road sign. Right? Think of that example again. No one would confuse a sign that says Vancouver, 65 kilometers. Nobody would confuse that sign with Vancouver itself. And so it is with sacraments. As signs, they point to something else. The bread and the wine are signs pointing to the body and blood of Christ. Okay, but then why does Paul speak about a participation in the body and blood of Christ in 1 Corinthians 10? Or to phrase the question differently, if Christ is not present in the bread and wine, in those elements, is he present at all? Yes, he is. He's present, not physically, but spiritually. Not in the bread and wine, as if he becomes the bread and wine, but at the sacrament, as the sacrament is being celebrated. Jesus Christ is there through his word and spirit. He is there to bless his people, to bless those who look to him in faith and for the strengthening of their faith. At the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit is present. The spirit of Jesus Christ is present. And through faith, he wonderfully, he mysteriously communicates Jesus Christ to believers. Here I want to draw your attention again to the Belgic Confession, Article 35 on page 469. In the middle of that second full paragraph, in that way, Jesus Christ always remains seated at the right hand of God his Father in heaven. Yet he does not cease to communicate himself to us by faith. This banquet, isn't that a wonderful word to use in describing the Lord's Supper? A banquet. This banquet is a spiritual table at which Christ makes us partakers of himself with all his benefits and gives us the grace to enjoy both himself and the merit of his suffering and death. Whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ is truly present spiritually. He is present to bless us through these elements of bread and wine, just as he is otherwise present to bless us in our worship services through the word as it is preached. You know, loved ones, this is the problem spot for many Christians in our day. Because many today view worship services in an all-too-human way. Many view worship services as simply a place where we gather together to do something for God. The emphasis is on human beings offering their praise and worship. Now, viewing the Lord's Supper only as a memorial where much, if not all, the emphasis falls on our remembering Jesus Christ, well, that fits right in there with that perspective. However, that perspective is deficient. It lacks balance. 
Because the Bible teaches that when God's people gather for worship, God is present. God is meeting with them in a way that He doesn't otherwise meet with them. There's something different. There's something special about a worship service. God is here meeting with us. Just as He was present in a special way in the Old Testament in the most holy place, He's present here this afternoon. Present in a way that He's not present elsewhere. And if you need scriptural proof for that, there are a lot of passages that I could refer to. We could go through a whole list of them, but I'll just throw out one. 1 Corinthians 5.4. If you have some time later, make a note of looking that up. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4. And further, God is here in public worship to feed us and to nourish us with the means of grace, with the Word and with the sacraments. Right? When we talk about means of grace, we mean Word and sacrament. And yes, in, in public worship, there is a human response element. Our worship is covenantal. That's one of the distinguishing features of Reformed worship, is that it is covenantal. There's a back and forth in the service. God speaks, and we respond. Now, for instance, at the beginning of the worship service, we have the call to worship. That is God speaking to us. Then comes the the, the votum. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's, that's our response to God's call to worship. And then God blesses us. He gives us the, the salutation. And it, so it goes on and on throughout the whole worship service, back and forth. God speaks and we respond. But for us to be responding, there has to be something from God to which we respond. In the Lord's Supper, there is both a human response, faith and remembering, and a divine action. God is doing something. And as far as the divine action goes, we say that Jesus Christ is present. Now, He'll be present here on March 11th just as He's present here this afternoon. He'll be present as we celebrate the sacrament. He will be spiritually present to bless us through this means of grace. Now let's consider briefly the benefits of this true presence of our Lord Jesus at the supper, this true spiritual presence. The Catechism speaks of Jesus Christ doing two things. Number one, assuring us. Number two, teaching us. Jesus is present at the Lord's Supper, first of all, to teach us. He's there to teach us that just as we need food and drink for our bodies, so we need His crucified body and we need His shed blood if we are to live forever. He is the only spiritual sustenance that we need. And in fact, no other spiritual sustenance will do. There is no way There is no way to eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. And here we can think again of that well-known passage of John 14, 6, where Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father apart from Him. And in John 6, 51, Jesus says that if we eat His flesh, in other words, if we take hold of Him by faith, we will live forever. As we partake of the sacrament time and again, we have the blessing of being taught 
being reminded of this gospel truth by our Savior. And then our Savior is also truly present, present to assure us, to comfort and encourage us. Each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, He is there to tell us that we share in His true body and true blood. In other words, that's another way of speaking about our union with Christ. The fact that we are joined to Him. We are His body. Because of what God has done for us in the Gospel, we're no longer objects of His wrath, but like His Son, to whom we are joined, we are the objects of His fatherly love. Like His Son, joined to Him, we are His children. We are His new creation in Jesus Christ. Last, but certainly not least, our Lord Jesus assures us that all His suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for all our sins. What wonderful gospel words those are, aren't they? In the Lord's Supper, Jesus is present to preach the gospel to us, telling us that He suffered and He paid for all our sins. He's wiped the slate clean of all our wrongdoing, of all our law-breaking. It's all been wiped away with His blood. That's good news, isn't it? But you know what? There's even more good news. And it's in that one little word in the catechism. It's the word obedience. Obedience. Do you think, brothers and sisters, that the good news would be good enough if Christ simply wiped the slate clean and, and then and then He gave it back to us and He said, now here you go, here's your clean slate and now it's up to you. It's up to you to fill that slate with good works, good works that will make you positively righteous in God's sight. Guess you get to start over and try again. I took away your sin, but now you have to do your part. And you have to be positively righteous so that God will accept you. Let me ask you, do you think that would be good news? If you think that's good news, I would really wonder if you understand the depth of human sin. If you understand the depth and deceitfulness of your own heart. Listen, loved ones. The good news is not do more. The good news is not try harder. There's no good news in that. The catechism draws on the Bible and gives us that one gospel word, that glorious word, obedience. The good news is that's Christ's obedience, not ours. Christ has not only wiped your slate clean of all your sins, He's also gone and filled that slate, your slate, with all of His perfect obedience to God's law, culminating, leading up to His suffering and death. You know, read Psalm 40 again. You know, He says, I have come to do your will, O God. That's Jesus. He did it. To put it another way, by His death, Christ has 
swept the house clean of all sin. And by his obedient life, he refurnishes that house with his own righteousness. All of his righteousness becomes ours. That's why the Lord's Supper form has those beautiful words. By his perfect obedience, he has for us fulfilled all the righteousness of God's law. Now, it's so easy when we go through these liturgical forms to just go through them automatically and kind of turn off our minds and, and to miss the depth and the riches of what's contained there. By his perfect obedience, he has for us fulfilled all the righteousness of God's law. Beautiful. Each time we hear those words, that's Christ assuring us that his suffering and his obedience are ours. That they are imputed to us. That they are reckoned to our account. It's as if we personally had done that. Done all of it. It's as if we personally had hung on the cross. That that had been you on Golgotha. Enduring the wrath of God. Suffering and paying for all your sins. But you didn't have to. See, that's the encouraging truth of the atonement. The substitutionary atonement. That's the truth that's taught in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him who had no sin. Jesus was perfect. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. To be sin for us. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin for us. He became what He was not in Himself so that we could become what we are not in ourselves. That's what the the reformer Martin Luther called the great exchange. Christ took all my sin on Himself. He became sin, says Paul. And in exchange, I have received all His righteousness. I have become the righteousness of God. That's an amazing, wonderful gospel truth, isn't it, brothers and sisters? And at the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus is present, spiritually present, to assure us that this is the truth. The Lord's Supper is kind of an an amen. It is true and certain to all of that. And so, loved ones, Whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's important for us to remember to cherish the fact that our Savior is truly present there. He's not physically present, no. But He is there. He is present with His Word and Spirit to bless us with the Gospel. The Lord's Supper is a memorial meal, but it is more, gloriously more, Gospel more. It's a means of grace by which Christ our Savior communicates Himself to us by His Spirit, through faith, and through the Gospel. And so it's a wonderful encouragement that we should never take for granted. Let's now pray together. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thank you for your crucified body and your shed blood. 
Thank you for instituting the sacrament of your Holy Supper. Each time we partake, we pray that you would help us with your word and spirit to be aware of your presence. Teach us that your crucified body and shed blood are our true food and drink for eternal life. Please assure us that we share in your body and blood. And we pray that through your Holy Supper, we would be assured and comforted with the knowledge that your suffering is ours, that your obedience is ours, as if we ourselves had done all of this. We praise you for your perfect redemptive work for us. We want to thank you, and we want to love you with everything in our being. Please help us in that through your Spirit. We pray in your name and to your glory, together with the Father and the Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.